Acts 1, 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if I were to say something about one word, namely dreams, the first thing you probably would think about is sleep, right? You go to sleep and you dream. Well, I do want to say something about dreams, but I want to turn the tables on it. Here's what I want to say. Dreams are not about sleeping. Dreams are the things that keep us awake. You all have them. I'm not talking about the nightmares that wake you up in the middle of the night. I'm talking about the dreams that are deep inside you. The hopes and aspirations. They keep you awake. They motivate you. I read in the paper this week that our... Um, Athletic director Fred Glass said that he did not have visions of sugar plums dancing in his head when he slept. He had dreams of the IU football field being filled every single game. That's a good dream. I was there yesterday, and I think you better stick to the sugar plums because you guys must not have showed up. I mean, there weren't a lot of people there. We all have our dreams, right? And I, I can see how somebody like Fred Glass is saying, here's my goal, here's my dream. I think about it all day, and you've got them too. Maybe right now you're dreaming about meeting that special somebody. Uh, yeah, you came to IU to go to school, but there's ulterior motives, you know. You're looking for that one? Maybe you have found that one and he or she is absolutely the best and now you're dreaming of those children. And then 
like today when the Hueys dedicate their child, you start dreaming of their future, what they're going to be like, how brilliant they're going to be, <laughs> how good looking they're going to be. And then you think of yourself, you know, oh, wait, that's not going to happen. No, you, you think grand dreams, don't you? You think that way. Some people think about power when they dream and wealth and, and just, well, actually not good things. But all of us dream. And you know what is at the base of our dreams? We want something bigger and grander than our life right now. You might be perfectly happy with your life right now, but your dreams take you beyond it to another place. Not because you're overwhelmingly dissatisfied, but because you know there's got to be something bigger something better. So you dream. I want you to imagine the first disciples. They were pretty ordinary folks, mostly fishermen who caught and cleaned fish all day. And they dreamed. They dreamed above the fish and the boat and the Sea of Galilee They dreamed about their nation called Israel. They dreamed about a coming because they were Jewish of a man called a Messiah, sometimes referred to as son of man and son of God. They dreamed of a day when they would be part of something that was bigger than life. Part of something that was magnificent and made Rome look like a blip on the radar screen. They dreamed of that day. And then along came Jesus. And they heard words they'd never heard before. They heard teaching and wisdom like they'd never heard before. And beyond that, when they began to follow him, they saw miraculous things. Remember that song we sing sometimes? The water he turned into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. None like you. They could append those words. Those were their thoughts. This is amazing. This is bigger than my life. I have found purpose and meaning in this person. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God. And they followed for three years. For three years they watched, they hoped, they waited, they learned, they shared. And then he went to the cross. And everything came apart. He died bleeding and crying out to God. Basically saying to God words they thought they'd never hear come out of his mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why'd you leave me up here to die? Where's the dream? The dream of a new kingdom. The dream of a bigger life than the one you got now. The dream is dripping blood on a cross. And you know how overwhelmed they were? They were so overwhelmed that they scattered like roaches when the lights came on. They disappeared and they ran. And then some of their women, God bless those women. Not the men, the women who went to the tomb and found it empty. 
and came back with the report that he's gone. And they said, this is unbelievable. And they ran to the tomb themselves and confirmed the evidence, the evidence that he wasn't there. And then just little bit by little bit, a report would come in concerning his disappearance. It wasn't theft of a body. It was a resurrection. He was alive. And he appeared to them over and over again, confirming with, as this text says, many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then finally, when he came back in all his glory to them, they must have thought, okay, dream renewed. We got it now, Jesus. You're back. You're indestructible. Messiah is here. Show us where to go and we'll follow. And he stuck with them for 40 days and told them about the kingdom. None of the words do we really have, except we speculate that probably some of those words are in the Gospels. And then poof, he's gone. Imagine the roller coaster ride of faith. Imagine the bigger than life now expectations going right back down again. I thought we had it. He died. He came back. He's indestructible. And now he disappears. What are we to do now? Right before he disappeared, they asked the most salient question, the one that burned in their minds, the thing that motivated them more than anything else. They said to Jesus just before he disappeared, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? I love the way um, a great preacher and theologian put it. Um, First, John Calvin, he said in that phrase, there are more errors than there are words. They had it so wrong, they couldn't have made it worse. John Stott put it another way. He said, in that statement, there's three ways in which you see their error, right? The first one appears, he says, in a verb, the verb restore. They had in mind that the kingdom of God was going to be a restoration of the way things were before, that the temple would be reconstructed in the beauty and that God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ would be the king on the throne of that temple and that everything was going to center right there. It was going to be the restoration of the way things used to be. And they didn't understand. The second word he says that they show their misconception on is the word which is a noun Israel. They actually thought that God was not only going to restore things the way they used to be, which is good as it gets, but he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they didn't understand that he wasn't talking about Israel at all. When he talked about the restoration of the kingdom of God, he wasn't talking about an old kingdom. He wasn't talking about an old place. He was talking about an entirely new deal. A kingdom that transcended everything they could have imagined, was international, was global. They didn't even know what the globe was. A kingdom that was that big. And then the other mistake you can see in their language, he says, comes in the adverbial phrase. Are you going to restore the verb to Israel, the noun, right now? It's amazing to me. If I was Jesus, he was way more patient. I would just be pulling my hair out at this point. How many times have we gone over this, fellas? It's not about Israel. 
It's not about a restoration like you used to know it because it's grander than that. And furthermore, it has nothing to do with the time because I don't even know the time. Do you remember? I said only the Father sets the times and the dates, so don't even ask me in effect. Even the Son of Man doesn't know the time. I'm here to introduce the kingdom of God to you, and I'm here to help you step into that reality and to experience it. Don't talk to me about times and dates and spaces and land. Oh, can I just drop something here? Some people are really, really, absolutely fascinated by times. And dates and spaces and land as it comes to the end times. And Jesus, in effect, says, throw it all out the window. You have no idea what I'm about to do. Don't dink around with the times or talk about the land or figure out in the book of Revelation who the bear to the north is. That's not the point. I'm coming and I'm going to establish my kingdom and you will be flabbergasted. Hang on for the ride. So what did he tell them to do? He told them basically four things. Not all these words embedded in this text, but the idea is there. As you see the book of Acts play out. He basically said straight up front, straight up front, go and wait. You're worried about times and dates and places and land and you think it's coming now? Here, I'll give you a signal. Go sit on your haunches. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Why wait, Lord? We're ready. He might have said, you're about as ready for me to usher in the kingdom of God as a 13-year-old is to drive a car. They wouldn't have said that. I said that. Because I remember when I was 13, I was ready to drive a car. And I had no clue what I was doing. And I would have killed somebody. And by the time I got to be 15, I got my learner's permit, and I still didn't know how to drive a car. But I was given the opportunity to learn. And by the time I got 16, I could drive without anybody in the car, which was the most dreadful thing in the world, if you had any idea why I wanted to drive. And you saw the things I did in my dad's car. I remember going across the interior part of Florida. My mom's here. She's never heard this story. I'll probably get in trouble even though I'm 53. (laughs) And we had a big old Chrysler Newport, 1967 Chrysler Newport. And it had a 389 in it. That means nothing to some of you, but that baby would run. And I was by myself. No, take it back. Sorry, Mom. I had some kids in the car. And I said to myself, let's see what this thing can do. And I had to pedal all the way to the floor. Now, this is not flat terrain, by the way. It's one of these. And somewhere after the needle buried and was bouncing at 120, I thought, maybe I should stop That's just absurd. I don't know what I would do if I found out my son David had done that. That's crazy. I thought I was ready. Jesus says, you're not ready. Go back and wait. (laughs) I've got something else for you. I'd like to tell you another story. It's too long, but 
I nearly killed my whole family one time because I wasn't ready to drive on an interstate in the middle of the night. I wasn't ready. The disciples are not ready. Go wait, says Jesus. I'll let you know. You know the story. They go back and wait. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit upon them. He might have said to them, you're not ready. Do you remember the cross? You scattered like roaches when the light came on. You need more than what you've got now. You just wait. I'll make you ready. And on the day of Pentecost, he made them ready by pouring out the Spirit on them. And the person who denied Jesus three times, Peter, stands up on the stump in front of thousands of people and fearlessly preaches the gospel and 3,000 come to receive Jesus. Now you're ready, Peter, because you listened to me. You went and you waited. Second thing he says to them, if uh, you want to know about this thing called the kingdom of God... I want you to know that not only should you wait, but you should be my witnesses. I, I just want you to be my witnesses. I don't want you to try to figure out times and dates. I want you to be my witnesses. I want, in effect, for you to tell people what you have seen and heard. You've been with me for three years. You've seen all this stuff. Now just go tell people about it. You know what? Did he give them a way to do it? As far as we can tell, there was no manual. He just said, go tell people about what you've seen and heard. How simple is that? How profoundly simple is that? Be my witnesses. Just tell people. Third thing, in effect, he told them to do was to watch. In effect, he said, I want you to go wait. I want you to be my witnesses and I want you to watch for my activity. I want you to keep your eyes wide open observing everything around you to see where the activity of God is going on and then just to step in it and let it take you like a river. That's the Holy Spirit. And then when you watch, you'll see me at work. And there's one other thing, and these are in no particular order he told them to do. Again, you don't see it in his words. You see it by implication. He told them to worship. You know why? I say that because they did. They went back and as they waited, they prayed together. And from the earliest days of the development of the church, you see people gathering together to pray, to sing, and to hear the Word of God read and to understand it. I want you to worship together, Jesus says. Go back to Jerusalem. That's a center of worship. Go back. And they did. I got to wonder um, what it was like when they went back to Jerusalem and waited and watched and were filled with the Spirit. It must have been amazing. They were not able to speak in other languages, so far as we know, in, in a moment's notice. They were speaking all these different languages. And people were hearing them in their own tongue. And they said, this is amazing. And they were witnessing with one voice what they had seen and heard about Jesus. Some years ago, I'm a, a computer neophyte, so I always go to Lynn or somebody else in the office to fix all my problems. And on one occasion, I was having some real trouble with my computer. It must have been six or seven years ago, maybe more. I couldn't figure out what to do. 
So I decided I'd call that number, you know, that help number that you have. And I think I had a Dell at the time and I called somebody and they answered the phone and I could hardly understand a word they were saying. You know that feeling? It was a different accent. And as I found out later, he probably was in an office in India, right? Um, because Dell has a huge conglomerate all over the world and India was one of the main places. So I'm talking to this guy I can barely understand. And then I'm deciphering the, the language and hearing it. And finally he says to me, uh, Mr. Rika, yes, yes. Uh, could, could I have your permission to do something? I said, well, I guess so. Uh, yeah, sure. what do you mean? He said, um, I would like to take over your computer. Say, what? He says, but I must have your permission. He said, if you'll just take your hands off the keyboard <laughs> and off the mouse, I'll take control of your computer. And it was the weirdest thing. He said, the mouse is going to start to move. And it started moving. And windows started opening. And he was dancing here and dancing there. And I was thinking, this guy's in India for crying out loud. How is this happening? I was completely out of control. Don't you think the disciples must have felt like that? I got blue loop and out comes a new language. I know what I want to say. I have no idea what I just said. No, I don't know if it was quite that way. The point is the spirit was entirely in control of their being. And a miraculous event took place. And people could hear the gospel in their own language. I don't even know how it happened. I don't know if it was so much them as the disciples or both or one way or two ways. I don't get it. All I know is that the Spirit of God said there's a whole bunch of people here from lots of different places in the world and every one of them needs to know about Jesus. So I'm going to make it happen. How about that for taking control? Go wait. Watch worship and be ready because I'll do amazing things. So what about us? If Jesus was here, actually he is, but if he was here in the body, I think he'd say the same thing. I think he'd say, wait, remember when they, um, saw Jesus go up into the heavens. They just were standing there. Where'd he go? They're like, is he gone? I don't know. And an angel basically too came and said, what are you doing that for? (laughs) Stop looking up in the sky. Stop stargazing. Drop your head back down on the ground. Get busy and wait on God. You know what I think is fascinating about the apostles? Is after they ask about the dates and the times, they seemed never to be fascinated with the subject again. I invite you to read the New Testament that way. Once they got the word and the Spirit was poured out on them, they didn't teach us a whole bunch of stuff about prophecy. Because they don't know. 
They weren't concerned with the times and the dates and the land and all the details that you hear in the prophetic stuff that's preached on TV and everywhere else today. That wasn't their concern. Their concern was about bringing the kingdom of God to bear right here, right now, wherever they were. And they had a job to do. And the rest was up to God. Oh, let me make a suggestion. I could go on and on about this, but I will control myself. Let me make a suggestion that you reread the book of Revelation, okay? And instead of reading it as a roadmap to figure out what's going to happen next in the coming of Jesus Christ and in the cataclysmic world events that you see all around you, whether it's in Crimea or the Middle East, instead of reading it like that and trying to connect the dots, how about if you read it the way John intended it to be read? Which is to encourage you with one theme, mysterious images. One theme. God is sovereign and in the person of Jesus Christ, he will bring an end to all evil and establish his kingdom finally, completely. Just be encouraged and rejoice. That's what Revelation says. And we're worried about bears to the north and the south and land. Go back to Jerusalem, he says, and wait. To us, he says, wait. Be busy while you wait. And what does he also say? Same thing he did to them. Be my witnesses. How? I don't have a formula. Some organizations can give you a formula. And that's fine if it works for you. But that's not the point. The point of witness is to share what you've seen and heard is to share your life. Look, it's not formulaic. You might think to yourself, I can't do it. Yes, you can. You might think to yourself, I'll get, my words will turn around backwards. How many times do your words get all muddled and turn around backwards when you're just telling your story? Really? Hardly ever. If you're trying to launch into some great defense, maybe so. But if you're just telling your story, man, about God, how much you love him, how much Jesus is in love with you and you can't believe it, how much that's transferred, transformed your world. Anybody could tell that story, right? And that's what he says, be my witnesses. You know, and everybody's got a different story. It's what's so wonderful about it. They're like snowflakes. None of them's the same. It's one of the things I love about baptisms. I get to talk to people about their stories and they share their stories with me and every one of them is different. You may have come from a Christian home. If you're like my wife and my children, you can't remember a time that you didn't love Jesus. You didn't have this gigantic experience, emotional point in your life where you surrendered to Jesus and angels shouted and your life was turned upside down and you stopped using LSD. That's why I used to think it meant it's like, because in the 70s when I was growing up, these guys were hippies. They were all telling about how Jesus delivered them from drugs and all this stuff. And I thought, man, you know, I need to do some of that stuff. And then I could get delivered. <laughs> and then I'd have a testimony. That's not the way it works. <laughs> My deliverance was from me. My deliverance is when God, through Jesus Christ, took a loving sledgehammer and smashed down my rebellion 
And I remember it. It was big for me. It was a huge moment. It was July 17th, 1977. But that's not everybody's story. What is your story? Own it. Share it. That's all witnessing is. Wait, witness, watch for opportunities. Oh, can I say just one more thing about witness and stories? Some people think that they have to craft a story that goes something like this. When I walked through the doors of the church, it was then that. When I went down and talked to the pastor, I became a Christian. When maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story goes something like this. I was a hopeless mess. And I encountered some people who invited me to a recovery program. And in that recovery program, I found my life again. And then later, I realized it was Jesus. He was there even among those people who didn't believe. He was whispering to my heart and now I am his. Maybe that's your story. You don't have to churchify it, okay? Be a witness of your story and then watch for the opportunities. They're out there, they're everywhere and God will blow your mind with them. I can't say much more about that. And then finally, the admonition is still the same. Watch, be my witnesses, wait, and worship. My friends, something amazing happens when the people of God get together. It won't be Pentecost every Sunday. But it can be for individuals. And you never know when. There's a bunch of you here, they're just getting started this year in school. And one of the first things that easiest things to get out of your schedule is being together with believers. You'll get too busy. You'll think last week wasn't that great anyhow. I don't think mm, I don't need it this week. Yes, you do. It's in the company of believers where songs and hymns and scripture and prayer and message converges. It's in that place that your life takes on meaning and is redefined. I promise you, I promise you, it'll happen if you stay with it. Stay in worship with the people of God. Worship creates a holy hope. It reminds us of God's faithfulness in the past and it promises God's faithfulness in the future. It reorients your world. You know, there's another way to look at worship. It's like a framework for fragmentary parts of life, which just kind of all are over the place. But those fragmentary parts of life, when stretched onto a frame, 
begin to make sense. Any of you here familiar with cross-stitching? Yeah. I never did it. My mom did a lot of it. Got a um, one in the living room that she did. And you know how you do cross-stitching? You take this fabric with a bunch of holes in it. And you take a needle and the thread. And you put the fabric on a frame and you tighten it. And the fabric gets tight. It's got a frame. It's stretched. And then you take the needle and the thread and you paint the picture. You couldn't do it without the frame. It holds it together. It gives it meaning. Worship is like that. One more image. You're sitting in it. The sanctuary. I love this place. Built it 10 years ago. Can't believe it was 10 years ago we built this place. It's gorgeous. I give you permission. Don't look at me. Look at the sanctuary. The natural light, the woodwork, the acoustics, the beauty of this place. I love it. I'm here every morning real early before anybody else gets here on most occasions. And I see this sanctuary, depending on the time of the year, as the sun rises. There's different colors in here, different hues. The way the light strikes in the back and through those windows, it's unbelievable. And I was here another time too when we were constructing the sanctuary. Daryl Jordan, a member of this congregation, been on the elder boards for years. He's a steel fabricator. That's his business. Um, the Mellencamp Pavilion over there was constructed by him with steel. And what you don't see is on the inside of this beautiful facility, it's all held together by huge steel beams. And Daryl was here the day when they were placing those beams together. And he said to me, every time I watch this happen, I have a pit in the bottom of my stomach. I said, what are you talking about? He said, because we shape those things in my shop. And we construct them. And our... Our margin of error is just tiny. It's like a sixteenth of an inch or less. I can't remember the exact proportion, but I know it was sixteenth or less. He said, it's got to be perfect. If it's not, the whole building won't hold together the right way. So he stood there and watched them, placing those beams together. Perfect. Look at the beauty. It's all because of the framework. You can't see it. It holds it together. That's worship for you. When you get together with the people of God, hear and pray the prayers, read and hear the word. Your life, which is just fragmentary, can be knit together and make sense. Don't miss it. Israel would have called it the center of life. Let's make it ours. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have given us something beyond our life right now. Not only have you given us eternal life, that hope that we uh, look forward to someday and to meet those who have gone before, but you give us a different kind of life right now that's bigger than just our life that we have. You allow us to enter into the kingdom of God and to proclaim it, to wait on you 
to witness for you, to watch for your marvelous work around us and to worship you. We pray that you will help us to activate that gift that you've given us of the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that in our small niche of the world, maybe an office cubicle on Monday, because we follow you, your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand?